welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Dave Mayer, who is the John H. Mitchell Professor of Business Ethics at University of Michigan's Ross School of Business, an award-winning researcher and highly rated and highly sought after teacher and speaker. He is an expert on helping people and organizations lead ethically, inclusively, and positively. So he is also a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review and Fast Company, and his research and ideas have been covered in Bloomberg, Forbes, Fortune, Newsweek, NPR, Psychology Today, uh, The Slate, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. So in his research and teaching, Dave examines how to help men adapt to a healthier form of masculinity that benefits not only themselves, but all people in their lives. So this is a very interesting conversation. Uh, I recently read one of Dave's articles in Psychology Today, where he extensively talked about how uh, when men show and express vulnerability in the workplace, um, they are often penalized for it, um, both in their uh, financial earnings Uh, and in their ability to move up in promotions. So we cover a few different topics in this episode uh, from precarious manhood uh, or how it's hard to uh, sort of get quote unquote manhood, but weirdly uh, easily to to lose it. Uh, And then we talk about the the research on one dimensional masculinity and the effect of it in the workplace and then how it's possible to have a, a sort of balance between that masculine feminine dynamic without sort of losing or being impacted negatively uh, in in the workplace and in life. And so uh, Dave also brings in a good amount of research uh, from a, a bunch of different studies that have been done over the past several years, both in workplace and, and uh, outside. And so it's a really interesting look into uh, when men sort of adapt and adopt these sort of more f- seemingly feminine qualities. Uh, and the impacts of that. So uh, it's not all doom and gloom. It's some really good insights, some really good research, and even more importantly, a really interesting conversation. So without any further delay, uh, please welcome and invite Mr. Dave Mayer. All right, Dave, welcome to the Man Talk Show. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we dive into what I know is going to be an awesome conversation after reading a good amount of your work, I have to ask you the question so that my my audience gets to know you a little bit better, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Yeah, so I thought about this a little bit. Uh, and I think one story that really ties into some of the, what we'll talk about today uh, and also, you know, some of my professional interests too is a, a personal story, which was a few years ago, about, you know, a few weeks short of my 40th birthday, uh, I had gone to the doctor and I got the call from the doctor that said, yes, you know, this uh, this tumor, it it is looks like it's cancerous and it was testicular cancer. And so it was shocking, definitely at the beginning. Fortunately, as I read more, it is a form of cancer that's highly treatable. Uh, but going through that process and like a pivotal kind of lifetime coming up on 40 um, and that's such a male part of the body. Um, and then also seeing that, well, there's all these support groups for women and breast cancer. And, and fair enough, like there's a large, higher percentage of women that get breast cancer. But, I, you know, the idea that men actually going to the doctor are asking for help. And, and the reality is I probably would not have gone to the doctor in the first place if I didn't have kids um, because I was like, oh, I should probably be responsible um, and I don't know if I would have gone otherwise. And so fortunately, caught this really early. You know, for me, it ended up being, you know, you know, about as good as it can be in terms of a, a surgery. And then, you know, things have been clear um, since then. But that was a really, I think, important point. And also shifted a little bit about what I've kind of how I thought about the world and issues around gender and also influenced how I've thought about my own work and what types of topics I want to focus more on. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting that you bring that up. I haven't. I haven't actually talked about this at all, but I, I definitely had a little bit of a scare earlier this year where I was having some pain, um, and it had been there for a while. And it was one of those things where I couldn't tell if it was physical or like psychological. You know, like when your body starts to change and you have some just like minor pain and whatnot. But it was. It was certainly 
uh, I certainly felt that resistance to just go get it checked out, you know? And it's such an interesting part of being a man where it's just like, you know, we kind of, I think I said this to you on the, uh, just before we jumped on air that there's a psychologist named Francis Weller and he says men, men come to therapy by circumstance and, and not by choice often, right? And so we often wait as men to go to the doctor, to go to therapy, to go to counseling, to go and seek any kind of support, whether it's physical, sexual, emotional, whatever the case may be. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Like from your experience, what, where does that, exactly come from like is that just a masculinity thing is it a cultural thing yeah i mean just just briefly i don't want to make too much of the conversation about this but i think it's applicable sure i mean i think a little bit is is both like this i mean some of these things are stereotypes and then also some stereotypes that really play out in reality so the idea that that men are afraid slash don't want to go to the doctor i mean that's actually a real phenomenon in our, you know, the, the psychological research on help seeking shows a huge gender difference on that. Men are much less likely to seek help um, in all domains of life, but like particularly um, within health. Uh, I think that I've, I've been really struck by this um, theory and research on this concept of precarious manhood. Have you talked about that at all on the show? No, I haven't, but I'm intrigued. Yeah. Uh, so, the idea is that uh, manhood is something that is difficult to attain, but it's easy to lose. And so um, you know, we have to work really hard to be seen, you know, in our own eyes and in others' eyes as like meeting what it, you know, meeting the criteria for being a man. But if you do something small, you could lose that. Whereas we actually don't find that the same with women. People tend to view uh, being a woman as something that's more stable, like that it's more sort of biologically based and, and harder to lose. Uh, and so I, this has this net effect of having men essentially reject things that they think might make them seem less male, um, which is tends to be things that are stereotypically feminine. So there's a huge amount of research with like fascinating studies for example, showing that if you tell a man that he has scored high on a test of feminine knowledge, like things like, you know, you know about it's stereotypic stuff, but shopping or flowers or something like that, when given a chance afterwards to choose like doing a puzzle or punching a punching bag, that men are more likely to choose the punching bag um, and that they actually punch it with even more force than others. And then if you ask them afterwards, how do they feel? Their anxiety actually does reduce a bit afterwards. And so like it is physiologically, even it is really threatening to be told somehow that you're less less than, you know, the, the prototype for being male. Uh, mm-hmm. And it has a bunch of oftentimes really dysfunctional consequences. So usually it is, you know, endorsing sexist attitudes you know, being okay with sexist jokes, uh, you know, do basically doing aggressive things to prove your masculinity. And it's really, really easy to, to prime that. And so I think that's a big piece of what's going on. Of course, some things are like broader in cultures and it's different in different parts of the world. But I think that this phenomenon of rejecting anything that feels quote unquote feminine is, is really a, a big part of the issue. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because uh, I mean, first off, I love punching punching bags. So <laughs> I like I really love boxing. I, it's just like it's in my it's like in my genes to just want to punch things. So uh, and that's not you know, I don't I'm not trying to sound like a Neanderthal or anything there, but I just genuinely really enjoy using my physiological um, capacities in that way. And I think, you know, I think what I hear you saying partly is and this is this is a saying that gets thrown around a lot is that masculinity is earned right and that masculinity is something that we have to cultivate and curate and we have to develop a sense of it because it's not a granted or given thing you know i think i'm curious to hear where maybe something like testosterone fits into this and in these sort of cultural norms but you know, my wife and I talk about this all the time. She's a, a really prominent couples therapist. And we talk about some of the differences between you know, biological men and women. And one of the things that that comes up, because women always say, you know, 
men don't know what it's like to have a period or to menstruate and they don't know what it's like to have a child. And it's like, yes. And women don't know what it's like to have a copious amounts of testosterone coping through your body that neurologically are shaping your actions, you know, and to deal with that part of you. And there's a lot of research around, you know, people that go through gender reassignment, women, individuals that were born biologically a woman that go through gender reassignment. And then they talk about afterwards having testosterone in their body. And they're like, what is this shit? <laughs> right. So I think that we we often under index the the real impact of something like testosterone. Um, but so that's given, right? Testosterone is given, but masculinity is this different thing. So how how do we as men try and earn our masculinity? What does that look like? I think you just mentioned a couple different things, but I'm curious to get your, your insight on that. Yeah, well, I think one piece on the biology part, uh, I think that is important to bring up because, uh, you know, there, we also find these huge differences in how liberals and conservatives broadly defined talk about men and masculinity. And this issue of biology is a really big one. So if you even get like, I don't know if you have this, but if you get like a Google alert on masculinity and it will give you like, you know, anytime it pops up, basically for liberals, they only really talk about context, like the culture, socialization. Men are how they are because of how they're socialized, essentially. Conservatives are much more likely to say, this is mostly a biological phenomenon. Like men and women are just different and that explains what's going on. And like every like nature nurture conversation, like the answer is always both. Uh, so it's clearly both of these things. So yes, like testosterone, I do think when we think about, you know, something like sex drive or and the role of testosterone, like we probably shouldn't be sort of making fun of slash penalizing men for that. At the same time, you also have to behave appropriately with that. So the other side yeah. is you don't get just to get to act on that, you know. Right, right. We get we have to we have to learn how to. And I think this is part of like masculinity is earned is that we have to learn how to cultivate some relationship with ourselves and the capacity to not be in control of ourselves because i think that's the sort of like the wrong language but how to work with these parts of ourselves that can sometimes feel overwhelming you know that can that can cause us to act sort of wild sometimes yeah definitely um and i mean and clearly there are things that you know we can we can do like that everyone can do that kind of help create habits or routines or rituals that promote you know healthier behavior uh you know you also asked about this about how do you earn it are you are you asking about like some of the less productive ways we do this or like productive <laughs> ways to try to do this well i think that's a that's a good question so let's let's touch on this briefly and then i do want to talk a little bit about the the work that you put out in harvard business review but um, yeah, let's, let's talk about like, I think we got, we hear a lot of the non-productive ways, you know, I think we could touch on that very briefly, <laughs> but then let's talk about the productive ways of what it looks like for a man to maybe earn that masculinity or within himself or within, within the culture and the society. Yeah. I think some of it is, is a, a reframe about what counts as being masculine, so uh, I do think language matters a lot. And to the extent to which you can see if the word compassion doesn't sort of fit quite with your notion of masculinity, like a word like fairness or like protecting a principle or something that is essentially the exact same thing, but feels more palatable. Like, I think that that like that is a reframe that's OK. If you ask people, men, like what percentage of men are feminists, it's it's like an, you know, an unfortunately low number percentage, you know, it's I think it's somewhere around 30 percent. But if you actually ask them, do you think men and women should have equal opportunity in society? It's like a much higher percentage. It's like, you know, it should be 100, but it's in the, maybe in the, in the 80s or something. And so I think sometimes if we feel resistance to certain terminology that we code as being like feminine or not masculine, that 
oftentimes that can be reshaped in some way to to think about in more masculine terms. Mm. I also think there's a real pragmatic part too, which is if you look at people, men and women, that are able to sort of hold both of these, what you know psychologists um, would call psychological androgyny. So not like David Bowie, you know, we're looking physically, but like psychologically, essentially just having qualities that are stereotypically more masculine and feminine, those people just tend to do much better in society. They they have better relationships, they do better at work, they're happier, they're healthier. And so I think like, even if some of the terms and ideas seem a little bit aversive, just the idea that like men also wanna like do stuff and get stuff done and be successful, that that also is a way to, to nudge the guys in the right direction. Yeah, I've always found that um, you know, when we can sort of break free from the one dimensional version of masculinity that mainstream culture, not even mainstream culture, because I think that that's that shifted quite a bit, but that the sort of old school, you know, I think we've gone through this period of time in the last hundred years. And I think a lot of it was born out of World War One and World War Two, these sort of epic wars where we had to compress masculinity down to a few traits in order for you know men to be indoctrinated to go out and kill and go to war and be killed and i think that's had a a ripple effect you know i think there's a trauma within men masculinity that we're just starting to heal and unpack and and we're expanding that one-dimensional version out and to be multi-dimensional so that it can include things like not just bravery and courage, but compassion and vulnerability and openness, and that we can hold all of that within a masculine frame and still be masculine. You know, I, I always refer back to uh, the Spartan warriors going through, uh, I think it was called go Goji or something. I, I think I'm getting the, the, pronounce, the pronunciation wrong, but their, their form of training um, you know, they did hand-to-hand -hand combat in the morning, they, they learned weaponry, but then in the afternoons and the evenings, they would learn poetry and dance and art and expression. And, and that was still a, a masculine endeavor, right? It was still something that like the ultimate warriors would go and do. And yet in our mainstream culture, we have stripped away these components from men and said, this is not masculine, this is not manly. And so you have a, a lot of men that are sort of gripping to and clinging to this very narrow band of what it looks like to be a man. And it all revolves around power and strength and, you know, certain aspects of what, what it means to be masculine. So let's let's use this maybe to sort of pivot into some of your work and, um, you know, the, this sort of idea of the impact on a man. Um, of straying from the stereotypes. You wrote a, a little uh, article that I read that, you know, how I found you in the first place, where it talks about the impacts of, of men straying from the stereotypes of masculine norms, right? Like giving, which can lead to uh, lower status and stigmatizing men who, who sort of show vulnerability. Um, so can you just speak to this a little bit and what it looks like for men to sort of stray from that one dimensional version of masculinity or straying from uh, stereotypical masculine norms? Definitely. Considerable amount of research on what we call backlash effects, which are essentially when either men or women act in ways that are stereotypically like inconsistent with their their gender. And so we so we see this a lot with women. And I think that that has been on the, you know, kind of on our front page a bit more. Things like books like Lean In and just the awareness that as women show are more assertive then they get backlash for that and they get called bad names for being assertive in a way that men aren't um, and if they don't act feminine enough like they're not helpful enough they face backlash and i think we're we're realizing more and more that this isn't you know specific to one gender that some, a similar thing happens for men so some research shows that when men are more modest for example um, as, a thought, as opposed to being more, not even arrogant, but just super confident that they can be seen as, as less competent. Uh, you know, there's other research showing that when men are more agreeable, you know, they're, they're nicer, they're sort of easygoing, that over the course of their lifetime, they earn 18% less um, in, you know, in lifetime income in a way that women don't face. And so, 
I think I never try to get into the game of, oh, like, which is harder, you know, for for the men and women. It's ridiculous. Losing battle. Yeah, it's not it's not the it's not the right question. It's not the right game. It's not it's not useful. Yeah, of course. Uh, And so I think what I like about this research is just saying, look, like this phenomenon is happening. And and what effect does it have if you if men get some type of external penalty for being compassionate or some work even for being a feminist or taking, um, you know, parental leave when they, then uh, there's already so many things pushing against men acting in these ways that society needs. If there's a penalty on top of that, it just makes it even less likely that that, that will happen. But I will say one caveat here is that I think that if men do display some aspects of more stereotypical masculinity, again, in a healthy way, that then demonstrating these other qualities, you actually get like a bonus, you get like a bump for it. So if you're a really high performer at work and you're assertive and you're also very kind, you get put in a different category. Um, Again, I think in a way that it's a little bit tougher for women necessarily to always be able to get into that category, even when they blend those. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's almost like what's expected of. And again, this is where the sort of social constructs come in and and whatnot. But it's almost like what's expected of a man or what's expected of a woman. Right. I think like culturally or socially, um, we've been largely conditioned to expect men to be more direct, to be more assertive. And so there's the bonus points that you're sort of talking about with, you know, letting compassion and kindness come into the fold. I appreciate what you were saying before about, you know, men um, sort of displaying some of these, uh, like straying from the stereotypical norms for for men, you know, wanting to take parental leave, you know, being more um, sort of like not outspoken or quiet or soft in the workplace. And then and then sort of not making, I think you said it was like 18% less. Um, I, I've certainly seen that, you know, in some of the corporations that I've worked for in the past where men who were men who prioritized things that were out of the sort of social norms for the masculine to prioritize like if work wasn't your single focus and your be all end all like i remember having a conversation at work i was actually just writing about this the other day in in the book that i'm developing um one of the guys that uh um, that i used to work with uh he was up for promotion and everybody knew it. The whole leadership team knew it. Everybody knew that he was sort of like next in line to get promoted. And uh, then he, uh, he he and his wife got pregnant and he let it be known that he wanted to take parental leave. And I was privy to some of the conversations the leadership team had at that point where they, you know, a couple of people basically said, like, <clears throat> if he takes that, if he takes that leave, then he's not going to get the promotion. And I, was, I remember sitting there being like, what, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> you know, like this man, this man, and you know, he had, there's a whole generational background thing there. His father wasn't a part of his life. So he was really wanted to be there for his child. So he's really trying to break, you know, a generational norm of, of absent being an absent father. And, you know, I just remember thinking to myself like this, this is such a strange issue to have in the modern workplace where we are inviting men to break those stereotypical norms and yet there are there are these sort of punishments and 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 yet you know i think it gives a lot of men like i can hear a lot of the women that are listening to this now and be like yes now you know what we've been dealing with for x number of years and it's like absolutely right absolutely this isn't to take away um from from that experience and so how do we start to navigate these waters because i think you know it seems like in mainstream culture it sort of pushes men to be more vulnerable to be more modest to be more more feminist um and yet a lot of this research is as you're saying in the average workplace treats men who are sort of like less deserving of their position or their salary like what is that what is combating that look like and and you know for the men that are tuning into this podcast who are still wanting to sort of be that staple? What is what does that what does that look like for them? How do they combat that? And how do we sort of culturally combat that? I know I'm asking you a lot of questions, big questions all at once. So I'll let you I'll let you choose which direction you want to go there. <laughs> yeah. Well, one story that I thought of as you were speaking is I went to uh, 
Have you ever attended the Better Man conference? No, I haven't. I haven't, but I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it, it was, it's a cool conference. I've been a couple of times. And the last one that I went to a year or two ago was at the headquarters of Unilever, which is like a fortune 200 company, you know, near, near, um, you know, in Jersey, near Manhattan. And so that's where they held the conference. And one of the brands that's part of Unilever is Dove and Dove Men Plus Care. And so they actually created an entire uh, really initiative about having men take paternity leave. And so, so much that they're actually going and lobbying Congress around this issue. Uh, and, and so clearly higher levels of management in the organization valued this. And one of the people who was there, who was high up, um, also said, oh yeah, I took leave. And like, I think that's a big piece of what actually has to happen is you see prominent people who are in the organization who talk about it openly. Um, and, uh, and you see that there is, there is no penalty for doing that. I also think it, it, you know, it breeds more loyalty for that organization. Uh, and they were a little worried about having a campaign about this because they thought, you know, so much going on with, with me too and other issues that in sort of women's mistreatment at work. And so should we really be focusing on an issue related to men? What they actually found was that, that women really love this idea because it establishes types of like norms and patterns where the man's much more involved at home with the child and with kind of the housework that needs to be done. And so I guess one implication of that, at least in organizations, is, is just the role leaders play. I know I like I took paternity leave and I asked a colleague like, you know, sort of between us, will this affect me at all? And they said no. And, and it didn't. But I also felt somewhat responsible because I wanted other people who were kind of younger or newer to the field to be able to say, yeah, yeah, of course, that's like what you're supposed to do. And you can still be successful, you know, otherwise. Um, so I think like that's a structural solution. Mm -hmm. I think on an individual level, I think it does like this type of work and like the work that you do with men about about what actually really matters to you. And, you know, what does a, a meaningful, purposeful life look like? And I do think if you do that work and you're honest with yourself, then professional success on its own usually doesn't win out of all the different possibilities. Like maybe if it was in the service of doing some good, but usually we prioritize relationships once we start to do that. And then I think it, it makes it easier to behave in these more stereotypically feminine ways, because those are the ways, things that we tend to value most at the end of our life. Yeah. Well, well said. I mean, I, I think there's, there's a lot of, um, a lot of different areas in there. I, like, as you're talking about the paternity part of it, you know, I've, I have the luxury and the, the fortune to work for myself. And so, you know, as, as we look at starting a family, there's, you know, when we, when we do have a child, I'll, I'll certainly be taking time off, you know, and, and the, the idea is that I'll probably take like a month or two off to spend some time with my new family and to build the business around that. But, you know, not everybody has that, that luxury. And, and I remember working for certain companies and thinking like, how would I start a family here? You know, how would I start a family in a way that's meaningful to me? And so, you know, I think that that question, I think everybody's starting to ask that question, right? Both, both men and women alike. And then, you know, I think the social roles are changing. You know, we're living in a time, I think I was reading the other day that I think it's something like 42 to 46%. I can't remember the exact number, but 42 to 46% of American households, uh, women are making, are the primary money makers within the home. And so, you know, we have a, we have a very huge shift, but culturally, I don't know if the corporate structures that we work in have changed enough. I don't know if like our narratives uh, around the home have changed. And I think for a lot of men, this is part of the challenge where it's, it is becoming less and less clear what it means to be a great man in today's world and what it means to be you know, I think a lot of it is that as, as this, you know, tidal wave and deservedly so of women have entered into the workplace and, um, you know, their voices are, are getting more attention than ever before, which is much needed. 
I think what's happening for a lot of men is that their <clears throat> version of what it means to be a successful man is now coming from women, right? It's like, this is what it should look like. And so I think you have some men that, that have really just taken that and run with it. You have some men that are unsure and you have some men that are really rejecting that, right? And I think in the last several years, we've seen this huge upwelling and, and sort of like rising of this counter movement to the feminist movement, right? And this sort of counter version of masculinity of holding on to this very macho, almost like misogynistic virgin, ver version of the masculine. And so I'm wondering if you can just speak about that a little bit, how you've seen it show up um, and, and why that might actually be happening, because it's a very interesting um, dynamic that's unfolding in our culture. And you have, you know, you have leaders that are showing up that uh, never would have gotten into power, you know, decades ago, <clears throat> even in some of the most seemingly misogynistic times. Um, so I'm wondering if you can just speak to that a little bit without us going down the political <laughs> rabbit hole, <laughs> which I think everybody's just fucking tired of. <laughs> yeah, we're like, the election's over. We don't have to think for a little bit about that. Uh, well, like this this um, idea about breadwinners too. Uh, yeah, I've heard similar statistics, maybe somewhere around 40%. And given the workforce, I mean, uh, COVID has disproportionately hurt women in the workplace. So I don't know how that will affect the percentages, but, you know, women had been over 50% of the workforce, earned 60% of college degrees and graduate degrees, you know, are more likely to be getting into STEM. So like you can see, it's not hard to predict, you know, what's going to happen here in the coming decade or two. And as that happens, I think like men have not adjusted. So the data on when men are not the breadwinner in their family it's, it's not so great for guys like they tend to, on average, to be more anxious, um, more depressed. Even research showing that uh, if men are not the breadwinner, they're more likely to have a prescription for erectile dysfunction medicine. The idea almost like the physical emasculation of like, I'm not supporting the family here. Like, that's a hard thing. Um, and it's, not, it's also, not know that one. Yeah, and it's huh. I, I can I'll, I can pass around some some things to you too, but like it's uh, it's also just not to I think the same way sometimes men are threatened by really successful women, and you see that. And if you talk to successful women in their thirties who like want to meet a guy, they're oftentimes saying, "What's the deal? Like, why are these guys so so threatened?" At the same time, it's it is less clear to me if. You know, what percentage of women, for example, would want to uh, marry a male school teacher? Like maybe that is like 95 percent, maybe or or maybe it's lower. I, I'm not sure. But I think that that piece probably, at least in the minds of men, needs to shift a little bit for men to go into these types of um, professions. And the reality is that if you look going forward, 13 of the 15 growing jobs are in historically feminine professions, like more female dominated, generally in healthcare and education, you know, what we call like these heed professions. And so, and men are not changing. So if you look at the data, women are more likely to be going into fields that were historically more male dominated, but men have not changed. Like the, the percentage is it's the exact same. When I talked to people at the University of Michigan in the School of Nursing a little while ago, are they getting more men to apply? Because it's such a great job and you you help people, you make a good salary. And it's pretty much been stuck at 10% for a long time. Like it's really hard to get men to, to make that change. And, you know, I think part of it is that, you, you know, you say like, why why is it that some men are holding on? I do think when you have been in a position of power in the, you know, like that men have historically been in, then it's really hard to make that that shift. Like men tend to take charge and, and have that type of orientation. And when they're no longer in power, like I think a lot of men feel lost. So we have like one sixth of the men in the U.S. who are. They're not even in the unemployment numbers because they're not even looking for work. So one sixth of men who are working ages, I think 25 to 64, 
are. They're just not working. They're not looking for work. They're disproportionately addicted to opioids. They're single. They have a really hard time attracting a mate. Um, and so like, this is a piece of the society. I think that's, that's being lost and they are, they, they're having a hard time adapting. Yeah. Wow. One, one sixth of men. I mean, I mean, it is, it is interesting because you, you look at the future of something like automation, which is, is, is just rapidly replacing male oriented jobs, right? Like I remember growing up <laughs> and, uh, in the small town in Northern Alberta and, you know, one of the, one of the one of the guys uh, it, just after high school got a job like putting handles on ice cream buckets, right? And he was making I mean he was making stupid money at that time. Like this is this is like twenty years ago, but he was making like twelve fifty an hour, right? And I was making seven fifty pumping gas at a gas station. And I look at something like that today, and in the factory, it was all men. You know, it was like men working those jobs. And none of those jobs exist today, right? It's all automated. And you look at the automation that's coming in the trucking industry, which is you know mostly male. I think three million jobs. Three, three million jobs in trucking. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, so a lot of these spaces, and it's like, well, what's the plan to not support, but like, what are we doing with these guys? Okay, right? Because I mean, like, if you think about like what is the sort of like worst case scenario for a man it's bored unemployed directionless and and without the ability to have a function in society it's like oh that's fucking dangerous you know it's like that's it's dangerous right when a man has no function in society he's rogue right it's like the ronin ronin syndrome right it's a samurai without a without a master and so and without so social you, connections you know like yeah, that, without social that also fades can you can you speak to that just a little bit like the, the decline of social connections amongst men is that is that something that you can speak to uh yeah i was saying something recently that i think 50 percent of you know a lot of high fairly high percentage of men also don't report having a best friend and and that actually when i talk especially to women about some of these issues even when their husbands are like you know, if they're married, heterosexual couples, their husbands are, um, you know, social and whatever. They're almost always want to know, like, how can I help my husband have friends? You know, and so um, and I like I I can totally see this. I feel that on my own, that challenge. I think especially as you feel more if you have children and you feel responsible for children. I do think it's like children, spouse kids maybe not in that order and then friends are further down on that list um and so i think what you know what we have to figure out is that you know if men tend to connect more around activities how do we create regular activities where we're doing something more than you know once a week or once a month that's more mm -hmm. regular and maybe even you know, if it's a physical activity, like how do we actually turn that into a conversation, you know, that has more depth? I know you've talked about this, about having, you know, it's one thing that it's so fun to go, you know, I love playing basketball with guys at the Y and having that experience. And there's something, you know, that feels great about that. It does feel different than like having like a real conversation with a guy about their relationship or something that, and I think those conversations just, seem to be happening quite a bit less. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's one of the the big pieces is that for a lot of men, the quantity, but also the quality of friendship is significantly decreasing. And I think a lot of men are, are feeling that that pinch of isolation. Again, I'll refer to the same the same psychologist, uh, Francis Weller, he, he's got a great line where he said isolation makes us impotent. And and you know, in not not in just a sexual sense, right? But in a in a depletion sense, right? It depletes our uh, our drive, our functionality. It depletes our connection to the world. And you know, we might be lone wolves, but having a, a sort of pack to use that term to 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 connect with and talk to is incredibly important. And you know, the research has shown that, right? The longest running study. Uh, out of out of Harvard, for example, that ran for I think it's now like almost eighty years. Studied th if, if we followed thousands of men, 
and found that the single greatest predictor of their health was the quality uh, and the relationship that they had with their close friends at 50. So, you know, when you look at the average man, he maybe has one, maybe two close guy friends, but there's a lot of stuff that they don't talk about. You know, that's really been surprising for me as I've built this network. You know, we've got the Alliance and we've got a couple hundred men that are in there. Um, but just the amount of guys that get in there and they just start having just real conversations, you know, about what's happening with their kids and what's happening with their wife and what's happening with their family or their job or stuff with, you know, stuff that's happening in their community or their concerns about the pandemic or whatever the case may be. And it's just such a refreshing space for them to just dive into and have real discourse that isn't inflammatory um, because it seems like a lot of men have interactions that are now online based and it's, it's not, it's not very, it's not real, right? It's like entertainment. It's, it's, it's completely disconnected. And so, there's, okay. you know, there's a place for like this, like these fun types of activities, interactions and what purpose that serves. But yeah, the piece about like real depth in, in conversation, um, that as the part that I think is tends to be a bit harder for, for men. Um, and like, you know, I think there are things that can work too. Like something sounds silly, but it's actually really a lot easier to talk uh, to other men when you're walking and you're side by side and you're not making eye contact. Like, so some of these things feel like that's sort of silly. Like really, like you can't be open if you're making eye contact, but it actually does help. Like more comes out. And I think if you're also willing to wait through awkward pauses that people say things to fill an awkward pause with more depth than maybe they, they would have. Yeah. And I, you know, I think a part of this is, you know, for us as men, cause I think we, you know, we've talked about a lot of research that's like, holy shit, you know, maybe, maybe the people listening to this are like, you know, the guys are like really feeling this one. Um, but you know, I think one of the one of the encouraging pieces for me is like these are all opportunities for us to face our fears, to lean into that uncomfortable aspect of building friendship or, you know, leaning into these conversations that we might not normally have. And that there is a sort of like, you know, to tie this back into the earning the masculinity part of the conversation is that part of that it has always been to face our fears you know, to face the, the sort of demons, right. To the, in the embodiment of the hero at some part of the journey. And for, I think for a lot of, of, of men in our modern culture, we have a very interesting relational dynamic with the hero archetype within us, right. We're either obsessed with it. And that's like this huge part of our life. And we're trying to be very heroic in every part of our life and it's causing dysfunction. Or we have we have not actually tapped into it at all. And so we're letting our fears dictate our life. We're not leaning into setting boundaries with our partner, with our wife, with our kids. And so we're this sort of like silent, um, absent part of the family, or we're not leaning into having these confronting conversations with our partners. So I was wondering if you can just speak to, to that, like for all the men that are listening to this and for the women that are listening to this as well, wondering that question, like, how do I help the men in my life? Where do they begin? You know, how do men start to sort of lean against this idea of like breaking with the stereotypical masculine norms while still cultivating some presence and direction and having that function in their life. I know it's sort of a lot to ask, but I'll, I'll hand the torch over. Yeah. I think for, for men on their own, I think taking words like vulnerability and talking about it as, as courage, like that's a word that you use is really helpful. Like, I think there's a reason why Brene Brown's followers are mostly women. Like the term vulnerability is really, it really resonates with women we keep, we're trying more and more to use that terminology with men. But I think if you think about it as like, this is really hard stuff and I'm brave and I'm courageous and I actually was not taught how to do this, you know? And, and I think if you can think about it in that way, then bringing up the stuff doesn't make you feel weak. It makes you feel like, wow, this was really hard. And, you know, I did it. Um, I, I think on the sort of, how do you support men in this? This is one that's really tough. And I've wrestled with, you know, in, in even talking about this issue, partly because 
you know, I think that in, in general, you see men in a dominant position in so many areas of society. So to say, to help move men, compassion probably needs to come first sometimes feels like a like a tough argument like it's discounting the crap that women deal with constantly and so without discounting that because that is the reality i think if you you have to you know praise the guys who are doing this and realize that it was actually like quite hard for them and you know try to see the world through someone else's eyes i mean i think the same way we would try to do this with like maybe we're having more of an awakening within the white community around Black Lives Matter and what's it like to be a person of color in society and like how do we actually have compassion and ask questions and understand. And it feels hard to do the reverse when it feels like men are in this this kind of higher power position. But just pragmatically, I think that helps. I think it helps a lot when you ask these questions like, really? And I, I feel the most compassion when we talk about like raising boys, like, you know, moms feel are just torn up when they see their boys having to act in a certain way or being made fun of for wearing pink or like whatever, whatever it is. But it does seem like something happens when like boys become men at 18. Like we just tend to view them differently. Um, and so I think like the external piece is, you know, curiosity um, and some compassion. We're not talking about compassion around sexual assault and that like that's a different category. But on not being able to actually share or to be able to sense how your you know, what your emotions are. There's where I think that that needs to come in. Mm, yeah, well, well said. Well said. And I think for I think for a lot of men, it does come down to their relationship with their own fears because it looks different for everybody you know like i i think about some of the men that i've worked with where their fears just look different right and that's and we we underestimate that because for some men their fear is going to be um you know having the tough conversation Uh, for some men it's going to be setting the boundary for some men facing their fear is going to mean speaking their need you know to their partner maybe it's a sexual need or an emotional need or um you know like they want to they want to cuddle or something like that right um and and for other men it's going to be completely different it's going to be fear of intimacy right i I think about some of the men that i've worked with that you know have built incredible companies or they're navy seals or they're in the military what they fear is different it's not having the tough direct assertive conversation it's actually softening right it's like it's like well what does surrender look like to a guy that's been in the military right surrender meant death and so for those men the Facing their own fear internally is about facing the fear of softening, about surrendering, about stepping, taking a step back and leading with empathy rather than attack. And so, you know, sort of like a a tactical attack. And so it looks different for every man. But I think at the end of the day, part of what all men in some ways are being called to do right now is to face our own internal fears. And that is a part of earning our sort of masculine stripes, as, as we say. And, and it does look different for everybody. So any, any final thoughts on that? And then we're, we're going to have to probably wrap up here. Yeah. I, I mean, I really love that sentiment that it's, you know, it can look a little bit different for men, but that a lot of it is around like fear and, the types of challenges that are faced like that's it's that really a hard thing to say could you please ask me more questions about myself could you you know hold my hand here like that's just not that's just not a well rehearsed you know thing to yeah. ask for most guys although they you know usually need it quite a bit um and so yeah i i mean i hear you on that and I see it showing up differently, you know, with my business students and MBA students where the men come off as seeming more confident. But if you dig just a little bit deeper, like they're just really good at like speaking first, whether they know, feel, where they really feel confident or not. And so it comes off that way and then it just becomes a little bit easier. But if you look at research on gender differences, like it tends to be like pretty small. Men are a little bit higher on self-confidence, self-compassion, but not a, not so much. Um, and so I think they're probably just better at, at faking that piece um, and that the actual fear there exists. 
Uh, and yeah. one other point yeah. that that you were alluding to is, I think, I think this conversation about modern masculinity has focused probably more on the more stereotypical male and like essentially maybe how to soften or we would, may not use that word, but that idea. Uh, but there's a, like a there's a really high percentage of men who don't identify that way, who are like, you know, I'm like, I'm sort of I'm sweet and I'm like kind of kind and I'm probably going to just get like walked over and I don't know how to flex that, you know, that other muscle around being assertive. And that feels really bad when you're not living up to that. And and that is a non-trivial percentage of men. And so when when people caricaturize, you know, this movement or this conversation as how do we make men more female? Like, that's totally not the conversation. It's like, how do we get the best of what are both, you know, historically more masculine and feminine feminine characteristics? And if you're a really sweet guy who's a pushover, it's it's not going to go that well for you in life. You have to be able to, you know, flex that other part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I I completely agree. It's like finding finding that balance is so Im- important. I think that's why some of the rhetoric in a mainstream conversation around masculinity does it disservice because of what a lot of men are hearing is just be more vulnerable. And for a lot of men, it's like, well, I, I am pretty vulnerable. In fact, that's part of the problem is that I don't know how to stand up for myself. I don't know how to set a boundary. I don't know how to ask for what I need. Like, I feel like a pushover in my relationship or my work environment. And so, you know, there's there's this sort of um, duality that's showing up. But I think yeah. there's this, so, there's a like everything polarized politically. There is something in between let boys be boys and um, toxic masculinity reigns everywhere. Like mm. there's something in between those two, which is the reality and just like, I think a much healthier version. Yeah. Well said. Well said. All right, my friend. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This is a, a great conversation um, for everyone that's out there listening. We'll have the links in the show notes so you can check out Dave and his work um, and some of the stuff that he's up to, some of his writing. Don't forget to man it forward, share this episode with just one person that you know is going to enjoy this conversation. It goes a long way. Uh, don't forget to leave us a rating and review. Um, thank you to whoever left the review this last week, calling me potentially the male Oprah. That's an honor, but also a little, a little funny. I got a good kick out of that. That's got to be a good thing. Yeah, I got a, I got a funny laugh with that. I was like, I don't even know what, what to do with that. Um, I think Oprah would probably disagree. Um, but thank you so much. Uh, don't forget to leave us a reading and review, share the podcast and until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.